You're listening to the Evolving Truths Podcast, featuring mother-daughter hosts, Shannon Day and Alexis Ray, where honest and vulnerable conversations about personal growth create a connection between all of us. You're invited to experience the transformation that occurs when we allow the truth of who we are to evolve. Hello, you beautiful heart and soul. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Alexis Ray, and this is Shannon Day. Hey, mom. Hey, Lex. This is the Evolving Truths Podcast, and today we are talking about real life, just like every other day. How you doing? I'm tired. I had a flare-up this weekend, so Saturday ended up taking my rescue medication. I had a good day Sunday. I actually ended up getting to walk like three miles. Nice. I still felt that migraine-ish hangover. Mm-hmm. And then today had an early flight. I'm happy to be here, but I am feeling it. Like I feel the drain. I feel the lag and I feel it in my noggin. Yeah. (laughs) So full transparency, my health is okay. My heart and my spirit is jumping around and that's just really where I'm at. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm a little frenzied this morning. I've been doing a bunch of dog sitting, which I love, but trying to connect with you this morning from an early flight and then get ourselves up for recording. And I'm only home for a couple of days. And then I start a big adventure of lots of dog sitting and traveling. So I've got a busy six weeks ahead and I think right now I'm just need to get myself centered and here in this space because I'm super excited for today. Does dog sitting feel kind of like when you're an aunt, like you get to hand the pet back to the owners? If you have a niece or a nephew and then you just get to hand them back to the parents. (laughs) That's funny. I love pets, but I have absolutely no desire to be responsible full time for a pet. I'm really grateful that all of your friends decided to have children later in life because I feel like it's taken a lot of pressure off of me to need to produce grandchildren. Not that I felt a lot of pressure from you. I was going to say, whoa. Yeah. Not that I felt a lot of pressure from you, but even internally in my own head, I'm like, oh, it's great. You have people that you can take care of and they don't have to be my offspring. Uh, This is true. And yes, I've never pressured you to have children. No. Full disclosure, kids, I mean, love them, but damn, they are work, girl. Girl, I know. Okay. (laughs) I can't even handle myself sometimes. We have talked about this before. I'm pretty sure that came up with Reggie. Uh, Yeah. But back to why we're here today. We're excited to be welcoming our friend, Nicole Smith. Hi, Nicole. Hello. We're glad you're here. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Welcome to Evolving Truths. Nicole's mom and I met years ago. We're thinking like late 2003 or early 2004. We were both in a business networking group and we connected through that actually working together and developed a great friendship, have both seen each other through some really hard times in our lives and been there for each other. And we both know we're still there. We did this a few weeks ago. I had scheduled a couple of hours and seven hours later, we were both like, we got to get home. How are we still here? (laughs) So that's kind of the story of me and Nicole's mom. 
Nicole has two siblings. When Dorsey and I met, you kids were all roughly 12, 10, 8, and 6. That seriously blows my mind and also gives me such an age complex. (laughs) Not that I've been struggling to get older, but when we start to put things in perspective like that, whew. We want to share a little bit with you about Nicole before we start our conversation. Nicole is a multifaceted creative. She focuses on expressing the story of a moment through photography, writing, design, lettering, or whatever medium she's exploring at the moment. By day, she works as the communications manager at the Center for Mind and Culture, a nonprofit research institute in Boston, Massachusetts. Outside of work hours, she pursues joy by getting outside, practicing creativity, exploring local breweries, love that one, and trashy reality TV. Recently, Nicole has been using writing in new ways to make meaning of difficult emotions and express grief. At 23, she lost her father to dementia, and she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer one year later. Nicole is working on weaving together the narrative of these events to understand herself better and move forward. She has found immense support online through thyroid cancer communities and other creators. In 2022, she joined the board of directors of Thigh to Bono, a nonprofit dedicated to providing resources, motivation, and support to thyroid cancer survivors. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. So good to be here. What a great introduction. My heart already just leapt out of my chest. I'm so happy you're on this podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm so glad our moms still connect and (laughs) we have the chance to do this. What led to Nicole being here was one day her mom and I actually now live around the corner from each other. And I was out for a walk crossing the street when the light was red, but it was safe. You were jaywalking? mm, Yeah. And I hear someone being like, you better run, walk faster. And I, of course, just ignored them because I'm like, I don't need comments on my current (laughs) crossing of the street. And then I hear again, like, hey, or something. And I turn, I'm like, oh. And so we stood on the corner and chatted for probably 45 minutes in the cold. Again, this is one of those things. We might not connect a ton anymore, but when we do, like we just pick up right where we left off. And one of the things that we've talked about was the fact that both of you are facing health challenges or have faced health challenges and how you two have been working through that and also seeing how you've utilized social media really to become advocates for the health challenges that you're facing. So after that, Lex, I asked you, I said, hey, I just ran into Dorsey and we had this conversation about Nicole. I think we should reach out to Nicole and see if she'll join us on Evolving Truths. So we did. I'm so glad you did. And Nicole, did you say yes to us right away or what kind of thought process went into joining us on Evolving Truths? This is so far outside of my comfort zone. I did have to think about it. It was something that I was like, wow, that sounds like such a great opportunity. And as soon as I listened to past episodes, it's so like both of you, it feels like listening to a conversation in your guys's living room or something. So it felt like the right vibe and I wanted to do it pretty quickly after I started listening, but I did have to think about it because it made me really nervous at first. I'm not like a public speaker or anything, but it's a really cool opportunity. So I'm happy to 
be pushing myself to talk about important things on this platform. I'm curious, was it easier to start sharing on social media what your experience was versus thinking about coming to a podcast? Or what has that been for you? And why did you start sharing more about your experience? Great question. I do think it is easier on social media because there's that distance, I guess, between you and the audience that you're not directly seeing people's reactions. You can kind of just put something out there, close the app and like walk away from it, which I've done many times. And you're like, okay, I'm too nervous to see what people are saying. So you can kind of stay away from it if you want to or need to. But what really got me started sharing about my journey, my experience with thyroid cancer on social media was, I think it was almost two years ago, I had my second surgery and there was this this group, Thigh to Bono, that I'm now a part of. They were putting on an event for National Cancer Survivors Day. I had never thought of myself as a cancer survivor. And they put on this event and I started connecting with all these different people who had gone through similar experiences. And it was just like so profound. I just felt seen and understood in ways that I hadn't before. And I've had a fantastic support system throughout this whole thing. But there's just something different about like not needing to explain yourself to people. And I really didn't find that in the way that I have through Instagram anywhere else. So that's kind of what started it for me was just like receiving that support from other people. And that eventually, you know, inspired me to put it out there for others that maybe someone else had had some of the similar challenges that I did, or just needed to hear my story to help them understand what they were going through. So that's kind of how I look at it now is, you know, I got so much support from other people early on who were willing to share their story. So I hope that I can kind of be the same for somebody else who who might want to hear mine, even if it's just one person, that's a world of a difference. Not feeling alone is so clutch, especially in health crises. And on the grand spectrum of life, we know everyone has different challenges. But for Nicole and I, over the last handful of years, it's been health. Obviously on Evolving Truths, we talk about many different challenges, but today we are talking about health specifically. So I just want to name that. It does end up being so isolating. We didn't know about it because we weren't exposed to it because we didn't have any background because we didn't have anyone in our life that had dealt with it. Why is someone going to go look up thyroid cancer? Why is someone going to go look up post-traumatic migraine flares? Unless you have to deal with it, there's no reason to. So then it happens and you're like, oh shit, I am freaking alone. And it sucks. Thank you for sharing that. Lex, you right away went to what does this feel like and what is that like? I know, but Nicole, you have to tell us your actual story. (laughs) So my bad. Sorry, everybody. We need to like back this up a little bit. Just back it up. Back it up. Can you tell us, Nicole, what your journey has been? So in... 2017, actually right after my dad passed away, I moved to New Hampshire to serve a year in AmeriCorps. And that was something that was already in motion before then. And I decided to move forward with it. And maybe like four or five months into living there, I started to notice this lump in my throat, like a physical, literal lump in my throat. And, you know, I was 23, 24, didn't really think anything of it. You know, maybe it's nothing, maybe it'll go away on its own just continued living my life. And I was also brand new to New Hampshire. I had just moved. I knew I was only going to be there temporarily. So I didn't have like a primary care physician or an established relationship with a doctor anywhere near there. So 
it was easier just to not do anything about it. Time kept going on and I was feeling a little bit off in some aspects of my life and kind of started to, you know, do some Google searches and my sister is pre-med. So asked her some anatomy questions and she's like, yeah, that's probably something related to your thyroid. So that's when I started going to doctors, went to several, you know, kind of jumped through the hoops of the medical world there to get a referral for a biopsy. So I had a ultrasound and a biopsy done probably about six months after I first noticed the lump. Funny enough, the biopsy came back as benign. They told me that I didn't have anything to worry about. And it's it's not uncommon, especially in women, to have benign thyroid nodules. So that was something the doctors kind of led every conversation with. They're like, it's a really small chance that this could be anything you need to worry about. And I didn't want to worry about it. So I, you know, fully believed them. And then the biopsy came back as benign. And I was like, great, we were all right. You know, I don't have anything to worry about. But I could tell that the tumor was growing. There was just like a pressure. It was uncomfortable in my neck. I could tell that it was there and it was bothering me. So I decided to have surgery anyway and have that side of my thyroid removed. We all (laughs) know that I'm a thyroid cancer survivor now. So they realized that there was cancer. They ended up taking out the rest of my thyroid. And that's how I was diagnosed. It was like this weird situation where we didn't think I had cancer for so long leading up to it. And then I had the surgery and it was like, well, you, you did, it was cancer, but we already took it out. So you're good. So I want to make sure I understand. So while they were doing the surgery and took it out, they basically did the test then and Mm -hmm. realized, oh, it's cancerous. So we're just going to go ahead and pull the whole thing. And then when she wakes up, we're going to let her know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I was under anesthesia the whole time. Technically it was two separate surgeries. They had like closed the incision back up, but I was still under and they just went back in and did the second half, which I'm grateful for. One surgery, you know, from my standpoint is better than two the same day. So that's fine. (laughs) What an interesting thing to go from, okay, I don't have cancer. And then I'm waking up and I did have cancer, but so there's not like a grieving or an emotional response Mm -hmm. process to that because they're like, don't worry, we took it out. Yeah. That was a real challenge for me to deal with for a long time. I never got that time to process it for myself. It was like, okay, well now it's already behind me. That's why I didn't feel like I could call myself a cancer survivor for so long. Cause I felt like I never lived that experience of having cancer. It was like not having it and then immediately jumping ahead to thinking that it was behind me. So it was definitely a hard transition going about it that way. Thyroid cancer is something that is often called the good cancer, which is so quote unquote. Yeah. Quote unquote, the good cancer, which is just bullshit. And I mean, no such thing exists, but the longer I've been in cancer communities, the more cancers I hear people describe as that. So I think it's all just a farce (laughs) from doctors trying to make us feel better. And I'd much rather they were upfront about what the experience is really going to be like. Cause even my first surgeon who was the one to diagnose me, I remember him saying before the surgery, like, even on the small chance that it is cancer, we'll just cut it out. You'll have to take a thyroid replacement pill for the rest of your life and like you're good to go. And it it sounded so simple. And I don't know anybody who's had that simple of an experience. So I think kind of grappling with that idea of how that changed my identity was definitely difficult when I didn't have that period of living with it and accepting it and thought that it was just going to be surgery, medication, back to normal life. But it, it was not. 
what did recovery look like? Like what was the next thing that you faced from there? Yeah. So recovery was probably about two weeks. I was there in Fort Collins. I had just moved to Boston at the time, but I was still on my mom's insurance. So that was a whole other, you know, chaotic element of going back and forth and figuring that out. But I'm really glad that I had the surgery in Colorado because my mom is amazing and she took great care of me. It was an ideal way to recover having her there to help make sure I got everything I needed. It was definitely a process, but moms are so good at that. (laughs) They are. They're the best at it. And I'm so grateful for my mom, both surgeries. She's done that for me and it would have been really hard to recover on my own or without her there caring for me. So that was fantastic. And then I was hearing about this therapy that a lot of thyroid cancer patients do after their thyroidectomy called radioactive iodine. And it's this big, scary term where it's hard to understand as a patient because it's not really something that I had ever heard of. You know, it's very specific to thyroid cancer. So I think most people don't know anything about it. And I was trying to decide if I should do this or not. And, you know, like any type of radiation, there's some pretty severe side effects. So that's where the thyroid cancer support group that I found here in Boston was so, so crucial because even though there was an age difference, almost all of those women in that group had been through radioactive iodine. So I got to hear firsthand experiences of what that was like before I decided if I was going to do it or not. Why Um, were you contemplating that? So you did the surgery and then decided mm -hmm. you needed more treatment? I should explain that. So my tumor was about four centimeters, which put me in a higher risk category for further disease. Radioactive iodine is a pill, a radioactive isotope of iodine, and the thyroid is the only tissue in the body that absorbs iodine, so it's really effective and specific treatment for killing off remaining thyroid cells. Whether they're good or not, you know, the doctors don't know if they're actually cancerous cells, but once you have your thyroid removed, you don't need any thyroid cells, so it's a common procedure that's done for thyroid cancer just to kind of like blast the area, make sure there's nothing that could become bad down the line. But there's some serious risks to it. Radiation of any kind can increase your risk for secondary cancer. It's not really understood the relationship between radioactive iodine and fertility. And that was another thing that was difficult to kind of understand with the age group of people in my support group, because by the time everybody in that group was diagnosed, they were way beyond having to make that decision, but I was still, you know, way before it. So it wasn't something that I had ever thought about. My mom was really concerned about it, but it's just not really well understood how, how much of an effect that that actually has. So there were some concerns like that down the line. Is this really the right thing for me to do in 10, 20 years when we don't really know if there's any thyroid cells left and if they could end up being cancerous later on? What age were you when you were contemplating the radiation pill? I was 24, 25. So barely a year or so after getting diagnosed and having the surgery. Yeah. The best time to do the radioactive iodine is within six months of surgery. So I was kind of on the end of that. I was coming up on five or six months by the time that I had decided to do it. I remember your mom talking about that process 
She had recently moved and she had a full basement she planned on renting, didn't have anyone in it yet. And I remember her planning, here's what I'm going to do for Nicole. Here's this, here's this, so that you could basically take that pill and then just be secluded down in the basement, but have your mom there for anything that you might need. Yeah, I was really lucky to have that set up. A lot of people have to navigate sharing a household with somebody else, or if they can't do that, then they have to spend their radioactive iodine quarantine in a hospital. Once you take the radioactive iodine pill, you actually physically become radioactive. So your body is processing the radiation and you're sweating it out. It's coming out in all your bodily fluids. So going to the bathroom, spitting, sweating, all of those kinds of things. So you really can't be around other people it, thyroid cancer survivors like to joke that we were doing social distancing before it was cool. <laughs> I would take walks around the neighborhood with my mom and she would walk, you know, six feet in front of me and, you know, make sure no one else was coming on the sidewalk, all of that kind of stuff. So it's, it's really intense and it's really confusing. I remembered from being in this thyroid cancer support group, I was getting tips and tricks from people about, you know, make sure you put a plastic wrap on the bed under the sheets so you can just wash the sheets and like do all this stuff, have paper plates so you don't have to worry about washing those tips and stuff like that. And by the time that I went into the like consultation with the nuclear medicine nurse, I felt like me and my mom knew more than than she did. We had so many questions and she's like, I actually don't know. No one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> well, <laughs> so and knowing you and your mom, I'm sure, oh, I could just imagine <laughs> what that appointment was like. Oh my gosh. Whereas I'm on the other end of the spectrum. My mom goes to my appointments with me and I'm like, mom, what am I supposed to be asking? <laughs> I have plenty of that too. Yeah. How so long are you radioactive? Yeah. yeah, it depends on the dose of radioactive iodine that you get. I got a pretty small one. So I was like highly radioactive, I guess you could say for the first 24 to 48 hours. But I stayed in some amount of quarantine for a week. So after the first like two days, I would go upstairs to the unit that my mom was living in. I think it was an hour and a half was kind of the limit, even if we were six feet apart. So we would watch the second half of a basketball game or something. Mm -hmm. And then I would go back down to the basement, have to wipe everything down that I touched. But I could be around people more after the first couple of days. But in total, the full quarantine period was seven days. And when you said it was confusing, what does that mean? There's so many directions that you have to follow. It's, it's exhausting to be dealing with a cancer diagnosis and then to have like all this constant information coming in at you about all these very specific things that you have to do to do this radiation therapy. It was just maybe not confusing as much as like information overload. It was a lot to take in. And that on top of, you know, the questioning if this was something that I really wanted to do in the first place, then it was like overwhelming to have it be so involved once I did decide to do it. There was a lot of research that I felt like we had to do ourselves. What's the best way to clean the space after my quarantine is done? Or what do we do with trash? And how many times do we have to wash my laundry? And just all of those kind of little things that I'm going to be living it every day and have to make all these decisions about how I'm handling everything in this space to deal with the radiation. But the doctors maybe don't think through that level of like step by step for an entire week. I love the advocating for yourself that you did 
and sounds like probably not only from your mom, but from others had some great support around. And I think that's really important when it comes to our bodies and healthcare is advocating for ourselves. So you were radioactive, a unique experience. Not a lot of people get to say that. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's definitely a unique experience. <laughs> I had a wristband on that they gave me at the hospital with like the radiation symbol. And you two will appreciate this as Coloradans that, you know, of course it was mid-March. So there was a huge snowstorm that day. And my mom's like trying to drive us back from Loveland in this blizzard. She can barely see 10 feet in front of her on the roads. And I'm just like becoming more radioactive in the back seat, And we're like... <laughs> what happens, you know, if, if something this is happens, how we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just here radioactive. So it's, it's one of those things that's so crazy that you just have to laugh at it because it's so bizarre. And there's so few people who have experienced that in the world that it's, mm-hmm. it's just kind of funny. <laughs> so you make it through that experience, Nicole, where are you at with things after that? It was sort of anticlimactic, right? I have all this time pondering this decision, deciding if I'm going to do it, getting all these people's input and their stories of what it was like for them. And then it's like, you go, you take the pill and you can't feel anything. You know, it doesn't make you really feel sick, maybe a little nauseous and tired, but it's not like you can tell if it's working. Did you glow? (laughs) Yeah, there's a certain radioactive glow that you get. Not to the naked eye, but yeah, if you were to walk through an x-ray machine or something at the airport, you it would set it off and stuff like that. You were just asking that question as a smart ass, and then Nicole answered and she says yes, and both of our jaws just opened. We actually like as a matter of fact, I did. A lot of thyroid cancer survivors call it their glow day when they go and take the radioactive iodine. So yes, I did. And then it was, you know, just like a long period of uncertainty waiting to see if it worked, really. It takes a different amount of time for everybody. It just kind of depends on all of the different variables from person to person. I did that in March of 2019. And right after you do a whole body scan to see where the radioactive iodine uptake is in your body. But even still after that, you have to wait to kind of see how everything settles down. So I did blood work a couple of times within the year, and then I was supposed to have a one-year follow-up radioactive iodine scan, but that was March of 2020. So that ended up getting pushed back. And once I started doing the scans, my blood work, the tumor markers had been going down, but really, really slowly. And once you don't have a thyroid anymore and you've done radioactive iodine, there should be nothing left to show up in that blood work. So they really want it to be undetectable or as close to zero as possible. Mine was still hanging out around like 15. So it was quite high and it wasn't going down as quickly as my doctor wanted. So that sparked some of the follow-up scans that I did in the end of 2020 and beginning of 2021. And it was more uncertainty. That was really the one word summary of that whole time after the radioactive iodine was just, did this work? Is something going to come back? What am I supposed to do in this time? Then I had several scans that didn't really show anything conclusive. So kept doing different types of scans. And that ended in a PET CT scan that did show some probably residual disease, something that had been there since the surgery and just wasn't removed at the time in my thyroid bed. So that's when I ended up having the second surgery to get 
that taken care of. And I had a phenomenal surgeon who went above and beyond due diligence to make sure that he got all the lymph nodes from the PET CT scan and kept looking and found some that didn't show up on there. So I'm very, very grateful to him for getting those out in one surgery. And after that, my tumor markers dropped dramatically. It's still not quite down to zero. So that's kind of been this last almost two years since that surgery is kind of coming to terms with the idea that that I might never be cancer free, that there's still something in there. As my endocrinologist puts it, you can live with cancer sometimes. And it sounds scary. It is scary. It was hard for me to get used to, but my doctor thinks it would be more risky to go in and try and biopsy or do surgery to find something really tiny in my thyroid bed than to just leave it and see if anything ever happens. We'll just keep a close eye on it and hope that it never grows and that could stay that way for the rest of my life. So that's what we're hoping for. So how old are you now, Nicole? I just turned 29. I was diagnosed when I was 24. So it's been four and a half years. You talked about living with cancer and the surgeon saying it's too risky to go back in. Let's keep an eye on it. So what does keeping an eye on it mean? That's something that I've only recently figured out, you know, four and a half years later. I felt like I was constantly trying to get to the next appointment or milestone to figure out the answer to that question. It's like, okay, once the levels go down, once we do the radioactive iodine, once we do this and that and that, then we'll have like your plan of action. But really only in the last year have me and my doctor figured out what that's going to be. So after the surgery, I had some blood work done. And then around this time last year, I had a CT scan. Through all the different types of scans that I've done over the years, we figured out like what is most effective for me, which seems to be a PET CT combination. Right now, the annual like lineup of appointments for me is to do blood work twice a year. My endocrinologist does her own ultrasounds, which is amazing because she can give me feedback. She'll like walk me through what's happening while she's doing it. But ultrasounds have not been very effective for finding my tumors. They've all been too deep to see on ultrasound so far. So we will use ultrasound, but knowing that, you know, blood work is kind of the the basis that we'll use. And if that starts to change, then we'll do another PET CT. So kind of a mix of a bunch of different things and just hope that no no one of those three starts to change too dramatically. So with blood work being a big indicator, have you determined this is kind of what we've established as my baseline, recognizing that it may never go to zero and this is what we're maybe going to allow as an upper limit or what does that look like for you? We haven't quite gotten to that point yet. My blood work is still slowly going down. Last time I had it done in the summer, it was like 0.07. Now it's down to like 0.04. So it did go down about half last time between the last two times I had it done, which I felt like was a huge accomplishment. But it, it is something that does fluctuate a little bit. I've definitely had some scares where it went up, you know, 0.01 or two. And I was like, what does this mean? Is something going wrong? But there is a level of fluctuation allowed. We still have to kind of keep it in the same range. But I think my doctor said if it doubles or goes above like 1.0, then that's kind of cause for concern. So that's what we'll be watching for, for the most part. 
you just feel like you're constantly like living on the edge? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. It was crazy because around this time last year, last spring, I really started having a lot of health anxiety. It was after doing the CT scan, after the second surgery, I felt like things were finally getting to a stable place. And then it was like, all of a sudden, my brain wouldn't stop thinking about all the what ifs. And for a few months, I had a really hard time eating because I was so worried that I was going to start choking on food or that something just crazy was going to happen and become a problem. And I'd have another like different kind of medical crisis to have to deal with. So yeah, I think the like remnants that that leaves in your mind of what can happen and all the what if scenarios is really hard to deal with. And luckily I got on an anxiety medication after I had this terrible panic attack at work about choking and it was just awful. I picked up the prescription that day on my way home, which I was so grateful that the medical team took me seriously and they were able to respond that quickly. And that's made a world of a difference. The anxiety is real of just wondering what's going to happen next, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like certainly something else is going to go wrong. And that's really hard to live with sometimes. I want to ask when you first found that community, was it really emotional for you connecting with them? Yeah, yeah, definitely was. So I think maybe two or three months after my diagnosis, I did seek out support systems specific to thyroid cancer. I pretty quickly found a local support group here in Boston that met in person, you know, pre-COVID and all of that. And that was a huge resource for me. But most of the people in that group were several decades older than me. So there was still like a disconnect that I felt where they weren't dealing with long-term issues the same way that I was, or some of the things going on in my life that are specific to being in your mid to late 20s. There was just that disconnect. It was a great support system, but it didn't feel like 100% there. And then as I started realizing that this was going to be a longer thing and not just one surgery, like the doctors had originally told me, I started seeking out more support. And that's when I started connecting with the community on Instagram. So it definitely was emotional. It was a huge relief. There are other people my age that are dealing with this too. Like you said, Lex, it's so isolating to feel like even in a group of other people who have the same type of cancer, there's still something missing. So it was just incredible to feel like there's other people out there who really, truly get every part of this that I'm going through. Thank you for trusting us with your lived experience and sharing it with us. I know that there's a lot more to your life than thyroid cancer, but it's such a big piece of it. On that note of living on the edge, but maybe in a little bit more fun way, let's live on the edge right now and invite you to come back so that we can continue this discussion and find out other things that you do with your life and ways that you have figured out how to be an advocate for thyroid cancer survivors, education around thyroid cancer and just what is it that you do for fun and, and to be able to live with cancer? And then, as you just said, health anxiety, which I'm going to guess, Lex, that's probably something you relate to. Oh my gosh. I know you guys can't see me right now. I'm just sitting here like crying. Um, 
I'm super excited to come back for part two and talk about the adapting and the choosing to keep living life and to keep thriving despite feeling like this is going to be something that you're dealing with for the long run. So thanks for being here. (laughs) Thanks for sharing this part of your story because it's so valid and you're just a freaking warrior. I hope you know that. And you're so honored and I'm just really touched that you'd be willing to come here with us. And I'm super excited to turn this corner in the conversation. So hopefully I can stop bawling. I would love to. (laughs) The listeners can't see that I'm vigorously nodding along and you can. So yeah, I I definitely am up for that. (laughs) All right. Awesome. If you would like to connect with Nicole, we will make sure to put her links in the show notes, but you can check out all of her stuff at Nicole Ruth Photo, and I'm going to spell it N-I-C-O-L-E-R-U-T-H-P-H-O-T-O.com or on Instagram at Nicole Ruth underscore creative C-O. I'm literally speechless, so I'm going to do the best I can to wrap this up. If mom and I are totally your cup of tea, please leave a five-star rating. Please follow the show wherever you are listening. Share this episode with someone in your life that you want to have a conversation with or because it would add some value to them. And we will be back next week. Until then, please remember, life is beautiful and you create the magic. Have a good one. Connect with Shannon and Alexis in the Evolving Truths community by visiting evolvingtruthspodcast.com. Links are in the show notes. The artwork for this project was created by Julie B. Salazar and is entitled Celebration from the Inner Landscape Print Series. The Evolving Truths podcast is produced and edited by Shannon Day and Alexis Ray, recorded from the Corner Studio in conjunction with Alexis Ray Enterprises, LLC.